Women's Health Melbourne is an innovative, holistic fertility and women's health practice. We are world leaders in IVF and egg freezing and provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our hand-picked expert team provides the ultimate care experience for our patients. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr Rayleigh Alou. Today we have a special guest, a patient of Raylia's who is sharing her experience with fertility treatment. Welcome Gemma. Thank you, very nice to be here. I want to start with the ending. What was the outcome of your treatment? I have two gorgeous boys. Oh, (laughs) perfect. Just what we like to hear. Gemma, do you want to start telling um, our listeners about what led you to start seeking fertility treatment? I started to seek fertility treatment following probably a few months of trying. I went off contraception about March 2017 and then I knew my mum had gone through IVF for me and my brothers and she had um, endometriosis so I just thought I better thought get everything checked out and I don't like to wait so by (laughs) about November I thought I'll go and get on my blood test and that's when I first started to see Raylia. Something that I think when I think of going to doctors you need to find the right specialist for you. How did you find Raylia? And this was a few years ago and a lot has changed. Yeah. But what were the steps you took to finding the right specialist and how did you know Raylia was right? I had a really good GP and she works at sort of a women's clinic and I went to chat with her and she also sort of gave me actually similar advice to Raylia when I saw her. She's like, I think you need to continue trying naturally. I'm going to give you a referral because that's what you're here for. And she re- highly recommended Raylia. I think she sort of described Raylia as, you know, and again, we're talking back a few years ago, you know, a, re- a younger, very knowledgeable, up-and-coming doctor. And maybe a few years ago, it was a little bit easier to get in to see Raylia. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so she recommended Raylia. And for me, I knew Raylia was my doctor from the minute go because both Adam and I like that Raylia presents everything with a lot of scientific background and this is, there's a reason as to why we do things and there was a lot of explanation around that and a, a lot about the numbers and statistics and for my husband and I that just really made sense to us. Mm. There was a lot of trust from the very beginning and as a result I think you've seen a huge amount of my friends <laughs> none who have actually needed IVF or needed any Wonderful. I don't think any real fertility treatment maybe a little bit of help along the way but yes a lot of people have seen her and I think just also recommended them to the next you know a lot of people but yeah I think it's very important to go to a doctor I believe who is very sure of what they're doing they know what they're doing but they're communicating it to you on an equal understanding and level and I think that's what Rayleigh gives so but this is why we're doing it this is what we need to do but we're in it together which so that for me was why I felt very comfortable going through the whole process with Rayleigh how old were you then I was 29 29 yeah okay so that's quite young to start seeking treatment yeah what's sort of the average age of someone who starts seeking treatment 
Oh, look, I think it's very variable. It's not so much about the age you are because importantly, a lot of gynecological issues that ultimately cause infertility have nothing to do with age. Things like endometriosis can happen at any age and and often the first signs occur when you're a teenager, when you first get your period and it can be very painful as it evolves. Really, we look more at how long you've been trying. So the statistical chance of getting pregnant every month when you're young and healthy is about one in five and it's quite normal for it to take a few months for women and couples to get pregnant. So we really say... 80% of couples are pregnant if there's not a problem in about six months of trying and 90% of those who are going to get there alone without assistance are pregnant within a year of trying. So usually those are landmarks that are important to me as a fertility specialist and I also take into account patients' gut instinct and also how they feel about how long they've been trying, whether it's something that is provoking anxiety in them as opposed to just meeting the textbook definitions of when do you consider things infertility. Certainly if someone is over 35 we also have to add in the fact that age reduces your chance of getting pregnant each month and it also impacts your chance of conception with maximum intervention. So we do like to do all the tests and know what's going on in someone over 35 after six months of trying, just so we can be proactive in a sense when their fertility is the best it's ever going to be from that time point moving forward. When Gemma came to see you, what, how did you start off treatment? Well, Gemma, I'll, I'll throw, throw it back to you. What did we <laughs> yeah. do? I probably remember a bit better. She sings a lot more people. I just, need to, <laughs> yeah. just need to tell listeners Gemma has notes. Yeah. <laughs> I went off contraception in... March and then it was November and Rayleigh said to me everything looks good on paper she's like because I had had I brought I think prior to coming to see you I went to my GP and got all the tests cycle tests whatever they are and then Rayleigh said to me to come back in January beginning of the year and see if I hadn't fallen pregnant she still thought that I had a good chance of falling pregnant because there was no signs you did send me for a tubal flush so I went for a tubal flush like a week or so after that. As Rayleigh sort of said, I think one of the big things for me was it was actually causing me quite a bit of anxiety Mm. and I like everything to be in control. And this is, it was the first thing I felt like in my life when it's like, if you work harder at something, you know, you're used to sort of being able to achieve it. Pregnancy ain't that. There's no my control. And so I did the tuba flash and then I went to start to see a Chinese doctor and she was fantastic because it was more for my mental health and just being able to, the way I viewed everything and I, by yeah, middle of Jan, I still wasn't pregnant. Mm-hmm. So that's when I went back to Aurelia. Tell us about the tubal flush. Um, I went to see a fantastic doctor at Cabrini mm-hmm. called Mark Tao or Tio? Tio, yeah, he's fabulous. Um, and he performed it and it was a little bit uncomfortable. Mm. But from memory I think like one tube was like totally fine yeah. and then one tube need, had a little bit of blockage but um it was easy removed so it's a little bit uncomfortable but it was actually yeah. it was not a problem yeah and then again Dr Mark thought that it would he often sees good um results after was, yeah but yeah unfortunately you know so yeah so so that really because I think Riley you had mentioned to me that it could be quite uncomfortable it yeah it was actually okay 
When we talk about a tubal flush under ultrasound, its other name is hycosi and it's a ultrasound placement of a little tube inside the cervix and we put some contrast media through under pressure and you can do it with different contrast media but the point of the exercise is to see if we can mobilize any debris that might be in the fallopian tubes that might be obscuring the pathway between the sperm and the egg and to gently remove any modifiable blockages so mucus plug, skin cell buildup, minor adhesions with a pressure flush and the doctors who perform this under imaging are gynecologists like Dr. Teo who have subspecialised in ultrasound and that subspecialty is called COGU. So it's not something you can have done at a general radiology and uh, you would be referred for a tubal flush at a women's ultrasound clinic. After the tubal flush and it was January and you yeah. hadn't conceived, you went back to Raylia? Yeah, I went back to Raylia. And then I remember Raylia saying to me that in most cases of somebody my age, when everything between my partner and myself looked fine on paper, she said, I can pretty much guarantee I'm going to find some endometriosis. But actually, I'll go back a step because I remember I had been away over summer and I was saying to my partner, oh, why am I going to... Because Rayleigh had recommended that we potentially might need to do um, a DNC and what's the... Laparoscopy. A laparoscopy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I remember coming home from my trip and this is me being very impatient. I just said to my husband, oh, why don't I just go straight to IVF? Why am I doing another operation? Blah, blah, blah. And I called Rayleigh's office and I remember speaking to Renee and I said, Renee, am I really going to do this? She's like, if Rayleigh has recommended it, I think you should do it. So then, isn't it wonderful? However, <laughs> summer you became an expert. hundred oh, percent. This is but this is my impatience. I'm like, why bother? Let's just go straight to IVF. Um, but and then I remember coming back to see Raylia and I <laughs> expressed my, you know, wisdom. Um, and Raylia said that even you reckon that you'll probably find some endometriosis, and even if there isn't any, or we have to clean something up, if we have to go down the IVF process, it'll provide a lot cleaner space for IVF to hopefully take so we did a laparoscopy I was infiltrated apparently yeah there was so much in yeah and it's one of those situations sometimes where ultrasound as good as it is and as good as the, the doctors who do the ultrasound are it can let us down in terms of diagnosis because endo can be flat and it can be diffuse and it can be there without really substantially distorting the pelvic anatomy in what's called a peritoneal sense. And what that means is that there's little dots of endo in the skin all around the pelvis and cleaning it up can help and it can help immediately for some people and for other people it can help long term. And in terms of when you do clean up the pelvis with endometriosis, we tend to say give it a little bit of time because all we can do is take you back to that baseline one in five chance of conception every month. We can't supercharge your fertility. We can just try and get it back more towards normal. Yeah, and I think for me with my endometriosis as well is the only sign I had was infertility, was that so I had very regular periods, never had painful periods, quite light periods. Obviously my mum had it, so yeah. that was I think an indicator, but there was, besides the infertility, there was no other sign 
That's for a me. really good point because some people with endo do present with infertility as opposed to pain. Some people who have really severe pain when they anatomically have a laparoscopy have very little endo. Some people who have really bad endo that really does distort the anatomy and is super obvious on ultrasound complain of very little pain. Mm. There's really not a very strong or good correlation between the degree of discomfort a woman feels and the impact of endometriosis on her body. And that makes it a condition that can go undiagnosed for a long time because you have to have a really good index of suspicion to look for it if the patient's asymptomatic and her ultrasound is normal. After the laparoscopy, how long was it between recovery and starting treatment? Oh, well, we didn't start treatment straight away, did we, Gemma? Probably no. sent you away to try naturally. Yeah, three cycles. But I think as for me, or sort of based on the point you just made prior, was that when you sort of cleared me out it's back to stage one mm. or back to stage zero almost you know we're start, starting at the real beginning again uh, my experience and anxiety is where I sort of come into because so I had the laparoscopy in Feb and I had gone off contraception the prior March so for me yeah. I had been going through it for almost a year but in actual fact uh, following the surgery, I was like, well, actually, no, this we're back at the very beginning again. And for me, that was extremely disheartening, even though, we had, yes, we had found a cause and an understanding as to why it wasn't happening, but I found that really tricky for me. And I remember my husband saying to me, he's like, and this is the difference between when it's your own body and you're experiencing, I mean, saying to me, do you think about, like, the infertility part side of things, do you think about it often? I said, Adam, I think about it every single time I go to the toilet. You know, <laughs> it is constantly in the front of my head. You know, what am I feeling? What's going on in my body? Is You know, do I have excess discharge? This, that, you know, it is a constant front of mind experience. And having a year of that, and look, I was, I, you know, I consider myself pretty lucky in terms of my experience, but a year of that is exhausting. Mm. I think I went away for three months and it hadn't happened and... I don't know all the research and understanding into the mental health side of things that it has on fertility because I could say that, you know, I was probably not in a relaxed state following mm. that. But, yeah, I think it was sort of I'm just looking. Yeah, I came back in the May and I was like, really, That's I'm the, done. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, protecting your mental health is an important part of it as well. Yeah. Mm. So May, mm. what happened in May? I remember really saying... She's going to put me on sort of, I think it was very sort of minimal dose. You wanted to get sort of, I think, between 10 to 13 eggs or 12 to 15 eggs, you said originally. Azraeli was throughout the whole process, totally spot on. <laughs> um, These experts. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a reason why they're good. Exactly, there's a reason for that. So in terms of the medication that I was on, because, and really you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think because I wasn't on such huge doses of things my experience was actually pretty okay I didn't have any adverse side effects I tolerated the injections pretty well I was not overstimulated at all and I think come to egg collection I think it was like we got 14 or 15 eggs or 13 eggs or something like that so mm-hmm. and Rayleigh was like that's exactly what I wanted <laughs> and it was perfect and and I think because of that obviously everything I responded pretty okay with and that the egg collection was okay yeah and then from that, we got 
six embryos. Which is yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's really so, good. These and, are great numbers. And that's mm. why, I mean, strategically, it's really, from my position, I always want to run a cycle to get the best outcome I can for a patient, but also to minimise their kind of symptoms that are unpleasant and to maximise their treatment experience in terms of making sure that we get a, as good an outcome as we can get for them, but also taking into account their age and the reasons behind their infertility. There are some patients who I do stimulate more aggressively because I need more eggs because we want to kind of bridge the gap between egg quality and how how many eggs translate to an embryo, how many eggs are likely to translate to an embryo. But when someone is relatively young, I'm fairly confident that their egg quality is going to be reasonable, especially when a barrier to fertility is clearly understood and and the techniques we're using are a good get around for that particular problem. Yeah, I'm glad you felt okay during your cycle. It was really, I don't recall any issues with it at all. So you had your six embryos? Yeah. And you decided to put one back? And was it a fresh or a frozen cycle? Fresh. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. all very quick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 14 eggs. Yeah, embryo transfer. We did one in on July was when I had the embryo transfer. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty quick to go back to Rayleigh and say, I'm ready to start. Yeah. And then by July, have your transfer. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's sort of, you know, an important sort of probably part of the process is that when you say, okay, we're going to do this and it's, you're, you're all in, yeah, you're all in, you know, financially, everything, you're like, okay, we're going to do this. And then as well, you're also balancing work and every, life and so for things to drag on and I could only, you know, empathize so much with all the women that went through this through COVID because you think you've got a plan and then it's ripped away from you is quite heartbreaking. When I started my first counselling session, which was in May, July 9th, I had a transfer. So that was actually pretty amazing turnaround. Yeah. And the transfer took? Yeah. Yeah. So that was great. Um, I remember the doctor who put it back and he said, oh, this looks like a lovely embryo. It was a very good quality. It was a very good quality embryo. I can't quite recall. Turned out to be a perfect embryo. Yes, yes. Until oh. what happened afterwards. But yeah, so we actually had positive pregnancy tests and everything was really good. So is that you had a scan at six weeks? Yes, yeah. with Aurelia. Yeah, mm-hmm. had a scan at six weeks, and then that's when I transferred to my obstetrician. And everything was fine. I, I think I saw my obstetrician probably, he likes to see it sort of seven, eight weeks. So I think I saw Rayleigh at six weeks and probably a couple of weeks later when I saw him. So then at about 12 weeks, I actually had a bit of a bleed. And so I went to the hospital. They did a scan in the hospital, in the emergency and everything we thought looked okay and the bleeding stopped. But then obviously the report went back to my obstetrician um, and he said, I can see something on the scan that I'm, I don't like. And so I had to go in and see him. And unfortunately, our baby had what's called an omphalocil. So the stomach of the baby hadn't gr- closed properly, which meant that the organs were growing outside of the body. So that was <laughs> a real shock mm. to all of us. And, and I think, I can't remember, but there was no evidence to actually prove, I think, that the bleeding was related to the omphalocil. It's probably completely unrelated. Yeah. Because bleeding in early pregnancy is really common. It happens all the time. Yeah. So 
you know, you got to look at all the positives. It, it was for us probably a slight blessing because it meant that we had a lot of because it was early, it was early on, on mm-hmm. so we had as many options about what we wanted to do as possible. So following that, we went down all the routes. We spoke to Rayleigh's, my obstetrician. We actually spoke to Dr. Mark Tiao again um, just because <laughs> I had developed a nice relationship with him through everything and he had performed the scan. So and we spoke to a few paediatric surgeons um, and for, unfortunately the baby just was not compatible with life. So we had to make a decision to terminate the baby, which was that's sort of at 12 and a half weeks. Yeah. Is this yeah. something that happens often? It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. It's not necessarily anything to do with genetics. It's just that to be a healthy baby, you have to have all the right DNA, but you then have to just orchestrate everything perfectly in the course of development. And we start actually many structures, including the abdominal wall, start as a plate and then wrap around and fuse in the middle. And unfortunately, if that goes wrong and doesn't happen properly, then we do have congenital abnormalities happen and affect about 2% of pregnancies will have a congenital abnormality of unknown reason. Yeah, and I remember following the termination and they sort of tested the embryo, we went and had the karyotype testing, I think. Yeah, and Rayleigh's, again, spot on, said to us, look, I personally think this is... Because, because again, we were lucky we had five embryos frozen and so the next question was, do we test those embryos? Because we hadn't previously. And Rayleigh had said to us from the minute go, look, I think you're young. Um, there's no indication to go down that route and there was probably more harm to the embryos if we had done that. And so my partner and I had the karyotype testing and it came back that neither of us had any chromosomal abnormalities and this was unfortunately just a freak of nature which was also good because then it meant that we didn't have to go back to testing those embryos. That's a good point so we sometimes make the decision to test embryos for different things if we anticipate that the parents have a condition they could pass on to a child or also if women are older because eggs as we get older just make more random errors that are chromosomal where the wrong number of chromosomes end up in the embryo. When we make that decision to do it prospectively and proactively we do it before embryos have ever been frozen and we take a sample of about five cells from the embryo at that stage where the embryo is is pretty strong as a blastocyst When we do retrospectively think about whether we go back and test embryos once they've been frozen once, we have to really be careful to consider that to freeze an embryo from its perspective is a bit of a trauma and to warm it up again is a situation where some cells are inevitably lost. And when we biopsy an embryo by first freezing it, then warming it, then biopsying it, then freezing it again, and then to use it to ultimately warm it for a second time, we can actually challenge that embryo to a point that it can't make a baby anymore. So from the point of view as a a doctor, I also have to think to myself, well, what's the probability of this embryo having a problem? And if that probability is low then sometimes the intervention to help us feel satisfied that we know more about that embryo 
may actually be harmful to that embryo and to that woman or couple in terms of the ultimate chance of having a baby with the embryos they have. So that's kind of the decisions that we think about when we contemplate biopsying embryos that are already in storage. By now we're in October? Yeah, middle of September. Middle of September. Yeah, yeah when we had so to it's been 18 it. months since yeah. we went off contraception. Yeah. We've been through yeah. a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What happened next? So then my husband and I went to a health retreat for three days. Oh, <laughs> that's probably what did it. <laughs> we just went, we're okay, we've got to switch off. We, we literally turned our phones off and like this was you know, a couple of weeks after, just needed to reset. Rayleigh said, I think Rayleigh got to know my personality pretty well because <laughs> obviously when my, one of my first questions was, okay, well, so when can we go again? Because, again, it's been 18 months and... And look, in saying that, I booked in to see a very good psychologist. That's so important and I think a step possibly not enough people will consider. Yeah. When, look, being a psychologist myself, like I also thought, you know, there's an element that you you feel like you're handling things okay, but you also, I had an amazing support system around me who were fantastic, but all they tell you is that they love you, that everything's you know it'll be okay and they comfort you whereas I needed for myself to know had I was I grieving appropriately what was I grieving or not only the loss of this child but you know what we had been through the past 18 months so I went to a psychologist who specializes in sort of pre and postnatal um stuff and she was fantastic I saw her for a few sessions and for me that was like yeah I've actually, I feel like I've got a handle on all of this and I've created my own understanding and story of what I've just gone through. You know, Rayleigh said, you know, we, as soon as your cycle starts again, we can transfer another embryo. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. But by seeing the psychologist as well sort of made me understand that I was doing this in line with what was actually going on for me and not as a way to sort of push down my grief and not acknowledge what I had gone through. So, yeah, I felt comfortable that mm. it was okay to go ahead with transfer. And I think that was in the November, I think I got my first period back after, yeah, the loss of the baby. So then we transferred second embryo. Yep. And, again, I was lucky it took first time. And nine months later... My son was born. And a baby. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's also really great that you saw a psychologist because it's not just the journey and of getting pregnant, but once you're pregnant, you then have a baby. And if you're not mentally ready to cope with a newborn. A hundred cents. Yeah. And I think that's exactly right because I think the maternal neurosis never stops. You know, the minute that I think, first of all, you start thinking about uh, having a baby. And then once you're pregnant, it's all about your child now and I knew exactly that that in your mind when you're pregnant you, all you want to do is hit these milestones but now having two children it's not just about the pre- you think oh I just need to get the baby out or I just need to get to 13 week scan I need to get to 21 week scan oh once I get to 32 weeks if it's born it'll be okay but then you have a child and you know and now <laughs> there's all these other challenges so I think being able to deal with that is essential mm. Gemma, after what you went through losing your first baby, Mm. how was the first trimester for you of your subsequent pregnancy? Yeah, difficult, really difficult. Um, I think I went back to see the psychologist once or twice during that time. It was was hard because 
especially because the first time, even though the bleeding wasn't directly related to it, every time I went to the bathroom, I was just petrified that I was going to see any sense of bleeding. Um, so it was tricky, but I think that the skills that I worked on with that psychologist, because as I was just saying before, you think, oh, I just need to get through the first trimester. And then you're like, oh, no, I just actually need to get through the 21-week scan. And then, so there was always something. And I think by going through those psychology sessions, I actually worked on certain skills and strategies for me to be able to work through the anxiety related to that. Because it was hard. Mm. Yeah, it was really hard. Yeah. And then, so once, once you'd had your baby. Yeah. I saw you quite soon after, didn't I? <laughs> well, okay, so... The, Gemma I, with the notes was back. Yeah, no, because this was... So this was, again, my mind just ticks, ticks, ticks. I had Teddy in the July and then I got my first... I started spotting, so I got my first in the December and then I came back to see you in the Feb because we said the February was my first real period because one of my biggest concerns was... Once my period starts, what happens with the endometriosis? And then I knew because everything I'd been through, we didn't want to wait too long to have a second. So I was coming to seek out advice about, do I go on contraception? Do I not? Like, where to from here? And at that stage, it had been three years since you started trying to conceive. Yes, exactly. Um, And you had a, what, a seven-month-old? Yeah, yeah. So lo and behold, the month that I went to see Raylia about... (laughs) asking all the advice about going forwards, I was unknown to myself, was actually pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> totally naturally and totally caught off by surprise. Um, I remember my husband saying to me, he's like, I thought you had to have sex to have it get pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing what the body can do. And that was just unbelievable for us because we never thought that was even possible. It was good. Hence not using contraception because I didn't think I was going to be able to get pregnant. And Rayleigh said to me when I saw her in the film, you're like, look, come back when Teddy's one. You're like, you actually don't even need to come see me because I think what we decided that we'll try naturally until Teddy was one um, and we weren't too concerned about the endometriosis because that's not too long of a build-up. But if by the time Teddy was one, which was, would have been in the July, then we would just go for an embryo transfer. I was very fortunate that so we didn't have to do that. And now you're living the dream of two under two. Yeah. <laughs> 16 months. <laughs> Almost feel like I've got twins. <laughs> very close, yes. Yeah. Does this happen often, Raylia, that people's second will happen? Yeah, so look, I think there's lots of factors, but they are that firstly we did a really good clean-up mm. of your endometriosis and I would have, if you were in the headspace to try for a bit longer, I would have definitely let you try for a little bit longer before diving into IVF. Yep. We moved to IVF mainly because mm. of the, the whole timeline and how Gemma was feeling at mm. the time. Yeah, the anxiety. The pregnancy is an amazing lesson that our body learns. So we learn how to be pregnant and the body takes that on. And there are so many physiological changes that happen during pregnancy immune system maturation, your body undergoes final maturation of of many different tissues, including breasts, but also from a hormonal point of view, the pregnancy is like that last endocrine lesson that your body learns after puberty. So you can certainly become more receptive, I believe, to pregnancy having had a baby. 
And actually, if you look statistically, the best prognosis factor for future success, both in natural conception and also in fertility treatment, is past success. So Mm. once you've had a baby, your chance of having another baby statistically is good. And then in terms of the hormones of pregnancy and breastfeeding, they're actually great to suppress endometriosis. So Mm. when we medically manage endometriosis, we try and have an environment with lots of progesterone that really stops that endometriosis from taking off again. We always say that we treat rather than cure endometriosis. It it is a condition that uh, you have a tendency, an underlying tendency to develop, and it can come back over time. But the right advice for Gemma, even though probably she was already pregnant, I think, when I saw her potentially, (laughs) um, but the right advice for Gemma was to try naturally because there would have been a good chance of that happening naturally for her as was the eventual scenario, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. And we've still got some embryos up our sleeve for later. (laughs) 30-year-old embryos. Exactly. Exactly. dream, exactly. Some of my friends said, I wish I had a few, you know, good, healthy embryos. I'm here with my 37-year-old eggs (laughs) and I'm jealous. (laughs) Going through what you've been through, which is quite incredible, two babies in under four years, but with a long yeah. period of trying, what advice would you give people who are listening? I think you've got to trust yourself. Like I think even now, you know, as being a mother, people always say to you, you've got to trust yourself, you're their mother, and I think that you've got to trust yourself from the very beginning. For me, I kind of felt that I needed to know a little bit more, I wanted to understand what was going on. So like Adam, my husband, would have said, yeah, it was fine, let's just give it a... A little bit longer but I was like no nah, I wanted to make sure that I had a plan so for me that's what worked um, I think it's also important to not underestimate the impact that this has on every waking moment of your life um, and to ensure that you have the right support system going through it because for me it wasn't necessary the physical aspect of it but it was just the whole part that dictates the long period of your life because you got to for me I was thinking about the appointments you got to take off work and all of that so making sure that the people who need to know know and I've always been very open about our experience and we had friends who had to go through IVF as well and they said because you guys were so open with what you went through we've also been really open And that doesn't work for everybody, but that worked for us because if I felt any shame attached to what we went through, then to me that wasn't creating a positive experience and sending a positive message. So for me, there's never been any shame. You know, people have different challenges in their life and this was what we were dealt with and we've got through it and it has built resilience. But, yeah, so I think it's about making sure you you've got your support system around you, trusting yourself if you feel like things aren't going the way it should. And I also think it's important to acknowledge, and I say this to my patients all the time, because going through tragedies mm. in as part of your fertility journey is unfortunately something that does happen actually really commonly. It's really mm. common to have miscarriages and it's very common, unfortunately too common to be in a situation where you do have to make difficult decisions uh, and we lose babies that are much wanted babies because of mm. tragic random events and it's the same women who have these tragedies that go on to have healthy babies and I think that's mm. really important 
to acknowledge. It's not one group of people who are affected by tragedy and one who are, you know, kind of blessed with, you know, kind of every good luck. It's often different chapters of the same story. 100% and that's what Adam and I always say, is that this has just become part of our story and, yeah, and it's our life experience and, you know, we, even though in the sense things we did, we lost that baby at 12 weeks um, but we still remember, you know, there's certain times in the year that we actually remember this baby that we lost um, and it's still sad but... We're lucky with what we've got and it's become part of our journey. And I look at my two boys and I'm so thankful that I've got two happy, healthy babies and I'm blessed. And I think for me, when you go through everything, once I got Teddy, my first child, I was just like, life for me is complete. Anything else was a bonus. Like I was like, I'm, I can be a mother. I've got Teddy. And for me, that was it. And, and my second son is, yeah. Is the bonus. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Gemma. No, thank you for sharing thank your you. story. No, I hope it helps. <laughs> to support Knocked Up, leave us a review or recommend to a friend. Join us on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast and join Raylia at Dr. Raylia Lou. And email us your questions to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au.